So let me open us in prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege to gather together. You promise us when two or more of us are gathered together that you're with us. And so I ask you, Father, that you might be the teacher. For there's nothing that can be said in the flesh that edifies the spirit apart from your teaching. The Lord teaches today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I was going to wear my coat because I was getting kind of hot. And the reason I was going to wear my coat, I had to take it off because of heat, was because of an incident that happened in clinic this week. And this really cute little patient, Erin, she was in, her family had just come back from a theme park. And she had a Minnie Mouse t-shirt on that was embroidered. I won't name the t- which theme park, but... It was really a beautiful T-shirt, and I always, with the kids, get down on the floor with them. So I was on the floor with her, and I said, Erin, I love your T-shirt. And she said, oh, thank you, Dr. Walt. I said, can I have it? And she said, no. I mean, just didn't, no. And I said, why not? And she said, because you're too fat. (laughs) But her mom, the head of our ICU, head nurse at our ICU, came right to my rescue. She said, oh, honey, he's not that fat. So I'm not sure that really helped me. So this morning we're going to be talking about spiritual assessment and clinical practice. There's no disclosure information because of seeing me. I have to tell you that. And the learning objectives are in the, the handout. Before we get going, I want to tell you about an offering that's free for you that I have. At uh, I do some medical journalism. And so I have a website for that called drwalt.com, D-R-W-A-L-T.com. And if you go to the homepage at drwalt.com, there's uh, access to a devotional called Morning Glory, Evening Grace. You can click on it, and you can sign up for it via Twitter feed or email or Facebook. But it's a rather unusual devotional because it does not contain the words of a person. It's just the words of God. It's a result of about 25 years of quiet time of coming across a topic, whatever it might be, and asking God's word, what do you have to say about this? And gathering all of the verses about that particular topic and looking at them, if you would, as a jeweler would look at pearls in a tray and then putting those together into what hopefully is a beautiful necklace of what God thinks about this or that or the other. So you can see uh, on the slides a couple of examples. There's shouting for joy and dancing to the Lord. But if the topic is of interest to you, you can click on it, and then those verses will come up. It's not a very long devotional, uh, but I hope that it will be a blessing for you, and it's absolutely for free. This module that we're going to do this morning is part of a larger course that's just been released by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations in the U.S., called Grace Prescriptions. And some of you may have heard of saline solution in the old days. Uh, how do you be salt in the right solution wherever you're called to see patients? It's now transitioned to Grace Prescriptions, learning to bring your faith into your practice. It comes in live conferences. And so uh, in November, there's one in Indianapolis, December, New York City. Next February, Orlando and Nashville. And then March in Chicago. But also comes in a small group DVD course. And you can get these dates and locations and look at the course at the CMDA booth. Uh, I have no, uh, I mean, I co-wrote the course, but I have, it's a gift. It was freely given to me. It's freely given to CMDA, so I don't, 
I don't benefit other than the spiritual joy of seeing you guys learn how to bring your faith to work with you based upon all the mistakes that I've made in the last 40 years of practice. And then they say coming in 2016 there will be an online course, so you'll be able to, those of you that actually know how to operate a computer will be able to, to use it. Now, if you want to take notes this morning, you can. Almost everything I'm going to tell you, with a couple of exceptions, is in two recent review articles in uh, today's Christian Doctor. It's the CMDA journal. One is the basics of spiritual assessment or spiritual history, including all of the academic background that helps you defend this intervention in secular interventions. And that was published in spring of 2015. And then the more recent publication is the most recent revision of the spiritual history called The Lord's Lap. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. That was just published. But both of these can be found, can be printed off for free uh, at uh, the website cmda.org slash spiritual assessment. That's not case dependent at all. But first, a question for each of you. And I think I know the answer because you're here at the Global Missions Health Conference. But every one of us who are called into health care have to consider what type of health professional are we going to be? Are we going to be a medical mercenary? Are you going to be like I was when I started practice where my spiritual life was separate from my practice life? You know, I had Sunday school and Barb and I did discipleship and evangelism. We did Small term, uh, uh, you know, uh, short term missions. We uh, did a clinic down at the soup kitchen in, in town. We did spiritual counseling with people. But I didn't really bring my faith to work with me. Kind of a medical mercenary, if you would. It was my tent keeping, my, my secular side. And it all changed one day in 1985 when my practice partner uh, and I were having coffee. And John Hartman said, how come we don't bring our faith to work? And it struck me like lightning that we could and that we should. And we began to pray about that. Are you a medical mechanic? Are you just uh, in a subspecialty area where you're just doing the mechanics of, of subspecialty work? Or are you in nursing or occupational therapy or physical therapy where you're going through the mechanics of practicing your profession but not bringing your faith to work? Or are you a medical missionary? No matter where you are. Are you a medical missionary? And my prayer is that this will be an intervention that will help those of you who are not medical missionaries begin, as I did, the process of seeing the appointments that are made each day with you. Not as appointments that were made last week or last month or last year, but as appointments that were made before time. As divine appointments. As looking at those patients who come into you as people for whom Christ died. And many of them he has sparked a spark that he's asking you to fan. And how can you find out about that spark? Paul wrote in Colossians 4, 5, and 6, Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders, those who are not believers, those pre-believers that we come into in divine appointments. He writes in the NIV version, Make the most of every appointment. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that everyone may know how to answer, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, I've changed the NIV version just slightly because Paul did not write, make the most of every appointment, did he? But he did write, make the most of every opportunity. 
And those are the appointments that we have or the quote-unquote coincidental run-ins that we have with patients or with staff or with colleagues. So this morning we're going to talk about a clinical skill that has now been shown to improve your patient's satisfaction with care. This one intervention will measurably increase the trust and satisfaction that your patients have with you. It's stunning. It will actually increase their perception of how much time you spend with them even though you don't spend that much time with them. It increases their quality of life measures. I don't have a clue how, but it does. It improves their mood and functioning. It decreases the use of unnecessary services. And it benefits the health professional-patient relationship. And this skill is assessing your patient's religious or spiritual needs. Now, if you're like me, you're pretty busy. You don't have time for someone coming saying, let me just suggest something else for you to do with each patient, right? I mean, I remember one time I, I, our practice was a teaching practice. We had resident students, fellows. We did community race-based research. And I just got torqued off at some recommendation that came out saying, here, add this to your practice. So we went with our pediatric practice, for example. We just put together how much time it would take to do every intervention that was recommended for every pediatric patient, and it was 142 minutes per patient. I don't want to burden you with something like that. So we're going to talk about something not quite so hard, but not just a clinical skill, a spiritual skill that will open spiritual doors in ways that you could not imagine. If you wish to do spiritual interventions in clinical care beyond praying for your patients, the most powerful intervention available to us, a spiritual history is the one that allows you to see Where is God in my patient's life? Where are they in their journey towards him? Has he even begun to call them? Are they absolutely rock hard at this particular moment? So Koenig, Hal Koenig, a research uh, psychiatrist at Duke, says the purpose of a spiritual history as part of a social history is to find out what your patient's religious background are, to find out if religious or spiritual beliefs or practices help them in coping with the illness or Do they actually cause distress? What about beliefs that they have that may conflict with care? None more obvious than the Jehovah's Witnesses' belief about blood products. Even surgeons can understand this. I'm just kidding. The patient's level of participation in spiritual community. Al, you're going to fuss at me after this for dashing surgeons. But the level of the patient's participation in spiritual community. And is that spiritual community supportive or is it not? And then fifthly, any spiritual needs that might be present. And I'll show you data later that the average patient you see will have three spiritual needs. And they usually go unmet. Not only in clinical uh, experiences at Christian clinic, at secular clinics, but at clinical experiences at Christian clinics where those of us who are part of Christian clinics get caught in these mechanics of medicine and sort of forget the spirituality. So it's to discover where the Holy Spirit is already at work so you can join him there. Becky Peppert in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, said, Evangelism is not trying to start a fire with wet matches and wet wood in a pouring monsoon rainstorm. Rather, evangelism is finding where the Holy Spirit has already Spark delight and simply fanning that fire. 
And that's where spiritual histories can help us. And yet, although research shows that most healthcare professionals, both Christian and non-Christian, believe that spiritual well-being is important, most of us are reluctant to explore spiritual issues with patients, and most of us report infrequent discussions and infrequent referrals. A number of reasons for that. Perhaps the, the foremost is time. That, that we're concerned about appropriately because of the pressures that we're under, whether we're in a university hospital or a secular practice or out in a, in a mission hospital. But there is academic op- opposition, and you need to be aware of this because we will see uh, folks who begin using spiritual histories, they run into a little resistance, and what is almost always brought up against them is a series of one of five prominent editorials that were printed in major medical publications, The Lancet, The New England Journal, Archives of Internal Medicine, American Family Physician, and Annals of Behavioral Medicine, all of which concluded that it's unethical, immoral, uh, and perhaps illegal to use spiritual interventions in uh, modern medical care. Now, there's a couple of problems with these data sets not the least of which is their age. They were published anywhere from 1999 to 2002. They have not been published since because they could not be published. And I'll show you why that that is. But even more importantly, do you notice something else about this data? The authors. It's all the same. The same two authors for every publication. Now, those of you that are involved in research or publication know that if something's only coming from one center or one author, it's less likely to be reproducible than if it comes from multiple authors. And these people are adamantly, philosophically, I think psychologically opposed to our bringing spiritual interventions. Perhaps the most recent example in mainstream literature was in Time magazine. They did an entire issue in 2009 on how faith can heal. And in a particular forum called Faith and Healing, one of these authors was asked by the journalist, who's an excellent journalist, she said, what role does religion play in health and health in religion? And Dr. Sloan, a research psychologist at Columbia, said spirituality and religion play a substantial role in helping patients overcome discomfort. But I don't think that's any business of medicine. I don't think it's the doctor's job to be involved with that other than to refer to a professional. Because you're not professionals. You you should prefer this to a professional. Someone who actually knows what they're doing, not you. But the the journalist pressed him. She said, so doctors shouldn't be taking spiritual histories? He said, I don't think they should be taking spiritual histories. Now, he's not been able, as far as I can tell, to publish that opinion in the mainstream peer-reviewed literature. So he came out with a book called Blind Faith, The Unholy Alliance of Religion and Medicine. But what religion do you think he's aiming at? The cover of the book, which shows the symbol of medicine is shadowed by a symbol of religion. Is it the crescent? No. Is it the star of David? No. Is it the Buddha? No. It's what? It's the cross of Jesus. Yeah. So, what do objective researchers think about this? Well, in the second edition of Oxford Presses, the uh, Handbook of Religion and Health, which came out in 2012, 
The authors, in looking at Sloan's criticism, say this. Sloan has become the world's most vocal critic of the religion-health relationship, and in blind faith, this book, cynically and caustically elaborates his one-sided extremist views that are not evidence-based. Yes, there's formidable opposition, but it's extremist, one-sided, and not evidence-based. So what does the evidence say? Uh, A systematic review that was published now almost 15 years ago adequately sums all of the literature that tells us that there are ethical and evidence-based reasons to take a spiritual assessment. And this article concluded the current evidence would encourage interested physicians, healthcare professionals, healthcare providers, and systems, actual health systems, uh, mission hospitals, secular hospitals, outpatient clinics, to learn to assess their patient's spiritual health and to provide indicated and desired spiritual intervention. Not spiritual intervention that you want to do, not spiritual pelts in your belt but to meet a patient where they are and to love them where they're at. Now, you know the author of that publication was me. If I was going to change it today, other than adding some citations, I would change this conclusion to read this way. The current evidence would encourage scratch interested, maybe insert all, physicians, health professionals, and systems to learn to assess their spiritual, patient's spiritual needs. This is now a core competence of care. It's part of quality clinical care. Now, in the article, I elucidate 12 evidence-based reasons. I'm just going to quickly skip through four because what I really want to do is get down to practicality. How do you practice this stuff? How can you put it to work when you start seeing patients Monday morning? So the first reason is that a spiritual history meets the desire of most patients. Secondly, it benefits most patients. It enhances the doctor-patient relationship, meets the latest quality standards for patient care, and, and this is most important, it helps identify religious struggle that's associated with morbidity and mortality. Let's go through it quickly. The handout in the article goes into much more depth, but... As one researcher wrote, in general, the public appears to view and value spirituality as a central factor of life. Now, you say, well, maybe that's because you live in the Bible Belt, and I don't. And I don't think they care about spirituality. They sure do when they get sick. It doesn't matter who or where they are. I was rounding with some residents not too long ago, doing hospital rounds, and we uh, passed the ICU, and the chief resident said this is a 34-year-old fellow who's just come off the ventilator. He had multi-organ failure from MRSA sepsis, and uh, he's doing great. We're going to get him out of ICU today. You don't need to see him, Dr. Laramore. But in the spiritual history, we've been teaching the residents to take spiritual histories. They noted he was an atheist, and I said, I would very much like to see him. And the chief resident said, well, why? He's doing well. And I said, because I think we've got a case report here. I think we can publish this. And he looked at me like I had two heads. He said, Dr. Laramore, I know you come from a small town. But we see MRSA sepsis all the time. And I don't think you're going to publish an article. I said, no, 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 it's not MRSA sepsis. It's an atheist in the ICU. Now, I've only practiced 40 years, but I've never seen one. And if he is, I think we can publish it. We went in and said hello to him and introduced myself and said, oh, by the way, the residents say that you're an atheist. He said, that's correct. And I said, so you've never thought of God since you got sick. He said, oh, I talk to him every morning. I know. I said, oh, shucks. 
I mean, not shucks that he was interested in God, but I lost the publication. But I'm kidding, but you see the point. So the public in general desires health professionals to inquire about beliefs that are important to them. They don't desire you to push beliefs upon them, especially if they're not ready. Right? Jesus said, John 6:44, no one comes to the Father until the Father calls. They're dead. And the only person that raises people from the dead is God himself. And so it's just finding where that spark is lit. So beliefs that are important to them, they're happy to tell you. The majority of patients, another review article said, would not be offended by gentle, open inquiry about their spiritual beliefs by physicians. Many patients want their spiritual needs addressed by the physician directly or by referral to a pastoral professional. And most recently in the internal medicine literature, this conclusion, studies have shown that up to 90% of patients want physicians to address their spiritual needs. Now, mind you, these articles that talk about physicians are physician directed articles. This principle applies to all of us in healthcare, no matter what position we have been called to. But when it comes to doctors, we really suck at this. I mean, we are really, really bad at it. If you, we've got four national data sets, the first published in 1994, asking the public, has any healthcare professional asked you about your spiritual beliefs? And in 1994, one in five said yes, 20% said yeah, at least one person, one health professional has asked me. In 1999, that dropped to 15%. In 2002, it dropped to 10%. And the most recent data, which is just over 10 years old, so it's old data, shows us at 9%. An article just published in August in one of the AMA journals looked at ICU interactions between health professions, doctors, and nurses, and the families of patients who were in the ICU. And there was something like 677 patients and 486 surrogate decision makers, family members, and almost 300 interactions, care conferences. And almost 80% of those family members rated religion or spirituality as important or extremely important to them or their loved one. But less than 16% of those professional interactions involved any discussion about religious or spiritual beliefs. And 80, no, 65% of those were brought up by the, patient, by the patient's family. We're terrible at it. But it does benefit our patients. It enhances the health professional-patient relationship. This is an older review by Dale Matthews. He was a research internist in Washington. He said they, they, he and his colleagues reviewed all of the literature looking at the relationship between physical, emotional health and spiritual health. And he says this, the empirical literature regarding the relationship between religious factors and physical and mental health status was reviewed. A large proportion, 80 to 90 percent, depending on whether you're looking at mental health or physical health outcomes, but a large proportion of published empirical data suggests that religious commitment plays a beneficial role in preventing mental and physical illness, improving how people cope with mental and physical illness, and facilitating recovery from illness. Name an intervention that accesses all three of these areas like this. They're few and far between. If we had a pill that did this, it would outsell Viagra. Not by much. But, but it would. By the way, of these associations, the prevention of mental and physical illness is the weakest association. Facilitating recovery from illness, especially surgical recovery, is the second strongest association. And far and away, the strongest association is helping people cope 
with uh, physical and mental illness. So they say this, the available data suggests that practitioners who make several small changes in how patients' religious commitments are broached in clinical practice may enhance health care. They did not say big changes, large changes, lots of time changes, but very small changes in how we approach patients can affect them. And the reason is because of the trust patients give us. They place us upon a pedestal of trust, usually before we have earned it. And very small phrases with very few words can have very large impact. We know, for example, from the pediatric literature for randomized controlled trial data that pediatricians who use less than an eight-second intervention to encourage parents to buckle up their kids every time they get in a car has observ- shows observable changes six months later by direct observation. Eight-second interview. We know in the tobacco recidivism literature that Health professionals who encourage someone to stop smoking, but the six-month stop smoking rate isn't far worse than Shantix, and it's a whole lot cheaper. What you say and how you say it and the spirit from which it comes can have a dramatic effect in very small eloquence of time. A review in 2012 said assessing and integrating patient spirituality into the healthcare encounter can build trust and rapport broadening the physician-patient relationship, and increasing its effectiveness. And then the Oxford University Handbook on Religion and Health from 2012 says, assessing and addressing religiousness or spirituality, those needs, is associated, listen to this, with greater satisfaction of care, better quality life measures, less depression, fewer unnecessary health services, better functioning, and a better doctor-patient relationship. Name something that you can do in a minute that will do all of that just doesn't occur apart from the spiritual history. So assessing and addressing religious and spiritual needs is associated with greater satisfaction of care and a better doctor-patient relationship. Now, the one for those of you that are in secular systems that will have the most benefit are the national quality standards for care. About 90% of medical schools are now teaching about religion spirituality in medical curriculums. This is also happening in the United Kingdom and Brazil. It's increasingly being addressed in nursing programs as quality care. And and I love this from the internal medicine literature. They say the ability to identify and address patient spiritual needs has become an important clinical competency. This just isn't for you, you holy roller, holy health professionals. This is for all health professionals. It's now considered a core clinical competency. As a result of that, the Joint Commission, what used to be called the Joint Commission for the Accreditation of Health Organization, Healthcare Organizations, now requires a spiritual assessment for all patients admitted into a Joint Commission certified or approved uh, organization or institution. This is kind of important because Medicare, Medicaid, and many insurance companies will not pay an organization that is not Joint Commission approved. So, your administrators, clinical managers, are going to be very interested in knowing if they're not meeting a standard. And spiritual history is a standard. This is what the Joint Commission says. This is straight from the regs. A spiritual assessment should, at a minimum, determine the patient's denomination, beliefs, and what spiritual practices are important to them. But why in the world would the Joint Commission require this? This is what they say. This information would assist in determining the impact of spirituality, if any, on the care services being provided, and will identify if any further assessment is needed. 
And last but not least, this one has changed my practice in the last year, completely changed my practice, and I'll show you how and how it can change yours. And it's this growing literature base on religious struggle. So the first study came out uh, of Duke in 2001. It was a longitudinal study that was done from 1996 to 1997. 500, I think, and 86 patients, uh, uh, both med surge and psych patients uh, who were admitted. They were followed for religious struggle variables. There were 16 variables they looked at along with physical and mental health measures. And then they looked at mortality two years, not morbidity, not sickness, but death over the next two years after discharge. That was the main outcome measure. 596 patients, a little bit older group, 55 and older. I used to call that old. I now call it adolescent. (laughs) After controlling for demographic, physical, and mental health barriers, the death rate in those that had any measurable religious struggle was 6% higher. Now, you know, 6%, eh, you know, maybe that's significant, maybe it's not. If you're the patient, it's very significant, but maybe not so significant. But look at this. If you narrow those 16 religious struggle measures down to the four that were most, uh, 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 had the greatest effect, that death rate went from 19 to 28%. Now, that ought to perk your ears up. If you've got someone you're discharging from a hospital or a patient you're taking care of who's coming out of a hospital who has been cared for in a hospital, and they have one of these religious struggle scores, they've got a 19 to 28% increased risk of dying in the next two years. Who doesn't want to know something like that? Now, there's four factors involved, and I'm, because I'm simple and I like acrostics, I call them the LAP factors, L-A-P. Now, the residents kind of laugh at me. They say, well... Dr. Laramore, there's four factors, and LAP is three. You know, that's kind of doesn't compute. But let me show you how it works. So the LAP factors are loved. In other words, patients who do not feel that God loves them. Uh, This illness reflects the fact that God doesn't love them. The A is abandoned. They feel abandoned by God. The P is they feel punished by God or punished by the devil. Now, here's how that works out. If, in answer to the question, does this illness make you question God's love for you? 22% increased risk of death in the next two years if the answer was yes. But causes a patient to wonder if God abandoned them or if they've asked for healing and it didn't happen and they, make, and they feel that, that God has abandoned them. 28% increased risk of mortality in the next two years. Punished by God for lack of devotion or for sin or for wrongdoing in their life, 16% increased risk of death. And punished by the devil. I I decided the devil made this happen, a 19% increase in risk. Now, the Duke study was the first one that actually looked at mortality, all-cause mortality in association to religious struggle. And the authors concluded this. Men and women who experience religious struggle with their illness appear to be at increased risk of death even after controlling for baseline health status, mental health status, and various demographic factors, including social support. So it was a multivariate analysis. They said there's an association between religious struggle and emotional stress. This particular study is from 2004. And it says clinicians should be attentive to signs of religious struggle. And where patients' responses indicate possible religious struggle, clinicians should refer to a trained professional chaplain or pastoral counselor. 
And I would agree with that. This is actually, psychologically and spiritually, some pretty deep water. And if you are not trained and experienced in spiritual counseling, you may want to call alongside someone else from the body of Christ who's an experienced pastoral professional, evangelical chaplain, or Christian counselor to, to help you. All of us do this in healthcare. We have things we are not trained or experienced to take care of. And we, we think of consultants for skin disorders or heart disorders. We have surgeons that, that we use. We have psychologists or counselors that we use. And we should have alongside of us spiritual support that we can call in when needed. The, a growing body of research documents the harmful effects of religious or spiritual struggle in a wide variety of patients. This particular study identified a 7% incidence of patients who were uh, wrestling in a clinic system with spiritual struggle. And an article that was just published September 23rd, so just a couple of weeks ago, indicated that now it's about 10% of people in outpatient uh, care uh, have negative spiritual beliefs. And here's what the article said. Believing that if they don't do something right, God won't love them. And this particular study looked at 200 patients to find out how their spiritual beliefs affected health outcomes. An individual in this study, study had chronic pain and tumors and cancers, TBIs. I mean, there's a wide variety of patients. And what they found was that patients who felt either abandoned by a higher power, the article put it, or punished by a higher power. See the lap factors? Love, abandoned, punished. That that group... Uh, uh, when compared to those who did not feel those lab factors, the negative spirituality group had significantly worse pain as well as worse physical and mental health outcomes. In other words, religious struggle predicts not only death but morbidity and caring for patients. So if patients report positive beliefs, those patients did a whole lot better. Now, those are not in the handout, and I'll be glad to give you that, any of you who want that citation. So doctors are better able uh, to provide patients with support if they can assess for religious distress. And in the handout that's available electronically, there's a number of studies about religious struggle in that handout. But here's the bottom line, that these patients, without their doctor's encouragement, will typically refuse to speak to clergy, pastors, priests, or pastoral rep professionals or rabbis. Why? They will not speak to God's representative because they're either mad at God or they feel God has abandoned or punishing them. But the healthcare professional they will talk to about these issues. So to review, a spiritual assessment is quality care competent care for all health professionals because it meets the desire of most patients. It benefits most patients. It meets the latest quality standards, including Joint Commission standards, and it helps identify any religious struggle. So what spiritual assessments should you consider? There are hundreds published in the literature, most of them validated internally and externally, and I really like the ones that are 300 to 350 questions. You can easily finish them in an hour with every patient, Right? No, I don't think so. So what I did, I've mined the literature and found all of those that have like four or five questions. The open invite is the most recent, well, it's the second most recent now published in the literature. The open is to open the door to conversation. This is done within your social history. You're asking about alcohol. You're asking about tobacco. You're asking about family. You're asking about firearms. You're asking about seatbelts. Whatever is in your social history, to just add the question, may I ask about your faith background? 
Do you have a spiritual or faith preference? Simple, easy question. Although I would tell you in 1988, when we started doing this in our practice, we always had the health professionals do it because we thought people were going to think these are really weird questions. And we wanted to be prepared to say, you know, if they said, why are you asking these weird questions? We could say, well, you know, the research literature shows that there's a relationship. And so we want to be really academic. And we want to... Nobody wrinkled an eyebrow. And I was meeting with my mentor, a dairy farmer named Bill Judge, one day. And I said, Bill, we've been doing these questions, and nobody even wrinkles an eyebrow. And he said, why would they? And I said, they're really weird questions. And he said, quote, you guys ask lots of really weird questions. <laughs> and I, I got my feelings hurt. I, got, I think I got defensive. I said, like what? And he said, well, like I came into my, for my preventive medicine visit with you a few months ago, and Tish, your nurse, asked me, how many sexual partners have you had in the last year? So I've been married 42 years. He said, but I struggled for a second because I didn't know if the answer was zero or one. <laughs> so just to open the door and see if, see if the, knock on the door and see if the patient opens it. And the invite questions, do you feel your spiritual health is affecting your physical health? Does your, spiritual, does your spirituality impact your health? Is there a way you'd like for me to account for your spirituality in your care? How can we provide spiritual support? I'm not suggesting you ask all these questions. I'm just throwing out examples so that you can... Find two or three questions that fit your temperament, your personality, your training, and your patience that you can begin to, to ask. <clears throat> now, the article says we should, all, we should use mnemonics for this to help us remember. And there are a dozen or so in your handout. But notice that the easiest one, because it only has three questions, are the God questions. This comes from Ghostbusters. We're on a mission from God in our spiritual history. So the God questions, the G is for God, the O is for others, the D is for do. Simple to remember. So the God question may ask about your faith background. Do you have a spiritual or faith preference? Is God or faith or spirituality or religion something that's important to you or not? Do you use tobacco products or not? Do you use alcohol products? Or it's just part of our social history questions. It's yes or no. If it's a yes, you may want to explore it a little bit. The O is others. Are you now or have you ever been part of a faith or religious community? Yes, I may want to know a little bit more. No is a no. And the D is what can I do for you? Do I need to know anything about your spiritual beliefs as I care for you? Would you like me to pray with you? Are there any spiritual resources you need? For those of you in hospitals, HIPAA now prevents hospitals from notifying the faith community about the admission of patients, which it used to do routinely in the pre-HIPAA days. And so even contacting or having someone contact that person's faith community or pastoral professional to provide additional support in the hospital. And I've been practicing the God questions since 1988. But what was I missing? Duh. The religious struggle, I never asked, and no one, I can't remember a case of a patient mentioning religious struggle. And so I have another acrostic. It's just got three more questions than the other one, but see what you think of it. It's called the Lord's Lap. Well, actually, I'll tell you a confession. When I first was writing it up for publish, it was, are you a pal of the Lord? Are you the Lord's pal? And the editor said, I think there are theological traditions that will have trouble with the Lord being your pal. 
And so I said, well, how about the Lord's Alp? You know, like being high on the Lord. No, that doesn't work. And then I got irritated, and I said, well, how about the Lord's PLA? And that way we'll be able to minister to any Palestinians, and they didn't like that at all. That probably shouldn't be in the recording. But So it's become, it's become the Lord's lap. And it's very simple, because the Lord part is L-O-R-D. Now, those of you that are really fast picked up that the L-O-D is the same as G-O-D, right? So... The Lord is the same as the God question, G. Is God, faith, prayer, spirituality something that's important to you or not? Yes or, or no? The O is the same as the O in the God questions. You know, are you now, have you ever been part of religious or spiritual community? Now, if someone answers yes to one or both of those questions, religion or spirituality is something likely important to them. And you'll get that sense very, very quickly and just with these two questions. Now, if they're like that big old truck driver I saw as a former defensive lineman for the Green Bay Packers, a fellow named Bob, big guy, and I asked him, I said, uh, is God, faith, prayer, religion, spirituality something that's important to you or not? And he said, no, like, no. And I said, okay, are you now you ever been part of a religious or spiritual community? And he said, hell no. He doesn't need the lap questions. I didn't even ask him the do questions because it was obviously something that was toxic to him. So if your patient is, and this doesn't mean Christian, this doesn't mean evangelical, this doesn't mean believer, this just means religion or spirituality of some form is important to them. And if that's the case, those are the patients who, to whom the lap questions, the religious struggle questions are indicated. I kind of remember it this way, by thinking, is this patient in the Lord's lap, or has this patient fallen out of the Lord's lap? And that's where the lap question comes in. So, has this illness caused you to question God's love for you? Has this illness or this disease or this disorder or this disaster caused you to think that God has abandoned you? Or have you asked him to heal you and he hasn't? I teach at the Inner's Image Residency, and we have a large predominance of churches in that area who are of a charismatic Pentecostal uh, theological trend, and it's not unusual to run into patients who have run into pastors who have said, if you ask God to pray, I mean, if you ask God to heal you, he will heal you. And if he doesn't, you either haven't asked the right way, or you have the wrong faith or not enough faith, or you have unconfessed sin in your life. But it's always your fault. It's not my fault. It's the pastor. It's always your fault. And we see those in the, the hospital. And the punished, do you believe God or the devil or and certain population, do you believe a higher power is punishing you for something? We were just rounding with a, a, a patient, and I'm teaching the residents how to do this. And the resident did a really good job. She did the LO questions and got positives on both. The patient was religious. And then she started down the lab questions. And so she said, has this illness caused you to question God's love? The patient said, no. Has this, and this was a cancer in this case, has this cancer caused you to feel God has abandoned you? No. And then she went on to the what can, we, what can we do questions. And she skipped the P. And so when she finished, uh, the patient was, I, the patients are usually my professors. They help me teach the residents. And so uh, I said, how did she do? And the patient was very satisfied. And then I asked the resident, I said, why didn't you ask the P question? She said, well, he said yes to the, you know, the, I mean, said no to the L and A, A questions. He felt God loved him, God didn't abandon him. So let's just ask. So she asked, she said, do you feel 
that this cancer is because God punished you? And she said, yes, because I have done this and this and this and this and this. And she reeled off a string of sins that would curl your toenails. But she felt God was punishing her. Her mortality is up because of that. If any of these are positive, it's time to consult or refer with a pastoral chaplain professional. But what about the non-believer? What about the bobs of the world? Is God, faith, prayer, spirituality something important to you? No. Are you now ever been part of a spiritual community? Hell no. That's the patient where the R of the Lord across it doesn't become religious struggle, but relationship. It's a time to let your patient know, or you can let your patient know, well, even if you're not, I'm in the Lord's lap. You don't say it that way. But it's simply a time for a testimony. And there's a couple of options here. And I always depend on the Holy Spirit's leading. One is to say that, well, you know, I've found that when patients are ill, they often begin thinking about spiritual things or religious things. If you find that happening, let me know. I would be happy to talk to you about that. You move on. Like the, the smoker. Do you smoke? Yeah, I poke, smoke 16 packs a day. I've been doing it for 160 years. And my mom lived to 320 years old, and she smoked more than me. And you say, if you set a stop date, say, no, I'm not stopping. I like to stop. And I'll say, well, if you ever decide to stop, let me know, because we've got some resources to help you out. Same thing with spiritual history. So if people, when they're sick, often think spiritual thoughts, if that happens, let me know. I'll be happy to talk to you about it. With some, I'll say, well, even though religion and spirituality is it's another form of testimony, even though religion and spirituality is something that's not particularly important to you, I want you to know that it, it's really important for me. And it affects the way I care for folks. But one of the things, and I'll, this is just me, I'll say, Barb and I will often pray for my patients in the morning. And would you like us to add you to our prayer list? We don't have to. It's just, would you like that? It's a testimony. It's an open door. And then the last part of the, of the Lord acrostic is the D. And it's the same as the God's questions. What can I do to assist you? Can we pray with you? In the case of someone with a religious struggle, it's a referral. So to end our time together, a word of caution. Don't ignore which many of you may have been doing, but don't be pushy. This is not the job of the chaplain or the pastor. This is the job of the health professional. And because you have trust with them that the pastoral professionals don't. But remember, professional problems can occur when well-meaning health professionals push a patient opposed to discussing religion. But rather than ignoring faith, With every patient, most of whom want to discuss it, we might simply ask a question once in a while. So before we get to your questions, I love this quote from Art Kornhaber. He was interviewed by Newsweek uh, quite some time ago. He was a uh, uh, psychotherapist at Yale, I believe. It may have been Harvard. But he says this, to exclude God from a medical consultation is a form of malpractice. Spirituality is wonder joy and shouldn't be left in the clinical closet. It's time to put it in our black bags and use it with our patients. Koenig at Duke says, at stake, this application of spiritual histories, at stake is the health and well-being of our patients and 
the satisfaction that we as healthcare providers experience in delivering care that addresses the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. You're at this conference because you're interested in missions. You wouldn't be here if you weren't thinking about taking care of patients physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. And this is the tool that can open that spiritual door with most, if not all, patients, no matter where you're called, in the world, or in what profession you're called. I wrote it this way in my review. The current evidence would encourage, remember I said interested physicians, healthcare providers, and systems. Now I would say the current evidence would encourage all physicians, healthcare providers, and systems to learn to assess their patients' spiritual health and to provide indicated and desired spiritual intervention. That we should not, without compelling data to the contrary, deprive our patients of the spiritual support and comfort upon which their hope, health, and well-being may hinge. So I hope this has been edifying for you and helpful. But let's take some questions. If you have comments, questions, concerns, criticisms, critique. Yes, ma'am. So, so the question was, in her institution, they do do a spiritual history, and almost all EMRs, not all, but almost all EMRs do have one. And most of them will let you free text now, so you can put in Lord or LAP questions to that. If, you have a, if you're an institution that has an EMR that doesn't have it, like I, I'm working now doing some work with an occupational health clinic, and they didn't have one. And so I went to the regional director and said, aren't we joint commission certified? Oh, yeah. I said, how come we're not meeting a Class A standard? He said, what's that? And I said, we're not doing a spiritual history. He said, why should we? <laughs> and I, so I gave him the regs, and we'd have it now. So, but the reasons are, and I only alluded to this early on, the handout actually has a more, but lack of time, like a study done in, gosh, 10 or 12 years ago by Ellis in Missouri, asked uh, healthcare professionals why they didn't do spiritual history. Lack of time was number one. It was 71% of the respondents. And in Koenig's most recent publication, uh, of the ten reasons he lists, lack, lack of time is number one. Number two is uncertainty about how, to, how do I do it. No one's ever taught me how to do it. You don't have that excuse anymore. <laughs> uncertainty. Uncertainty about what a patient's going to think. We now know they're, they're positive. And if we do it right, they're going to be even be more, more positive in the sense of not pushing on them, but joining them where they're at. Uncertainty about what other health professionals may, may think. I mean, and we now know that that opposition is non-evidence-based. And then just uncertainty. You guys are obsessive, compulsive, quality nuts. You like doing things right. And you're uncomfortable when you first do something. You do that first spinal tap or you start that first IV or you give that first shot or you do the first TB scan, whatever it is. Remember that feeling? It's like, I don't know, is this patient going to die? You know, for me. And then... You teach one <laughs> because you've done one. You know? And the same thing with spiritual history. And I remember feeling very uncomfortable early on. But this is an area where it, it, it's just almost indescribable, especially for your Christian patients. When you start asking, they'll just flower, uh, knowing that there's a bridge of trust, that there's a healthcare professional that actually believes the way they do. Does that make sense? Yes, I have one more question. Yes, ma'am. Oh, are you going to write any more Bryson City books? Some people say I've written too many. 
already, but uh, there's two more outlined of the three, but yeah, thank you for saying that. That was a, that was a sales pitch. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> okay, we have time for a couple more. Okay. So someone was transporting you before you were a believer and just said, I pray everything goes well. In grace prescriptions, of course, we call that faith flags. Natural part of conversation. Indicate that you're a child of God. Look for but don't demand a response. Take seconds and God uses them. Remember Big Bob? I'll end with this. So I do Big Bob's history. He's totally anti-religion. He's got a big old prostate gland nodule. We do a transrectal biopsy. He's got a Gleason 7 adenocarcinoma. Chooses to have nerve-sparing radical pro- non-robotic prostatectomy. That's what he chose. So the day of surgery, I went in, because I assist at surgery, so I went in to be with him and met his wife, Nina Sue, and um, just asking, have any questions, have any concerns before we go back? He said no. And then I was going to leave. And, but I, there's something I always did with patients pre-op or post-delivery or in the ICU or in the ER. I said, Bob, listen, I know that faith and religion is something that's not important to you. He said, that's right. <laughs> I said, but I, I hope you know that it is for me. And because of that, I always offer prayer to patients before surgery. And if you don't want that, that's fine. That's a-okay. But I just wanted to offer that. And I, he was going to say no. There was just no question in my mind. And he said, well, that'll be all right. And I'm glad I was holding the gurney. <laughs> so I just didn't expect that. And so I began to pray. And as I did, that big old calloused hand of his came up and grabbed my two hands and just vice-locked them. And when I said amen, he didn't let go. And I looked up, and he had big tears coming down his eyes, and his lip was shaken. And with his free hand, he wiped his eyes, and he said, you're not going to tell anybody, are you? <laughs> and I said, what, that, that you cried or that we prayed? And he said, no, that we held hands. <laughs> and I share that with his permission. It was about six weeks later, not through me but through some others, that Bob prayed to receive Christ into his life. And God saved that man, and he became the promise keeper leader of our small community. And there are now dozens and dozens of men in Central Florida who we will know and see in heaven because of the ministry of, of, of that man. started with a spiritual history, and not a good one. Let me pray for you guys. So, Father, thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for teaching us. Keep your thoughts with us as we depart. Bless us throughout this conference, but we look forward to the fruit that you're going to bear in us and through us as we encounter those divine appointments this week that you have set up. So for what you're going to accomplish in us and through us, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much.